Good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, to Hiawatha. Welcome back. If you're a Hiawatha person or if you're visiting, glad you guys are here as well. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Hope you guys are having a great December so far, good Christmas and whatever else you're up to this month. Um, we are uh, going to finish up a series today in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's taken us two years, but we're going to cross the finish line today. And just to give you guys a heads up where we're headed preaching-wise for the next, um, well, several months, I guess. Uh, we're going to have a Christmas uh, special thing next week and then a couple of open mic, we call them open mic sermons, where the elders get to preach kind of what they want. And there'll be some visioning stuff wrapped up in that. And then mid-January through May, I think, will be a series in Song of Solomon. So we'll start that. I think mid to late January we'll go uh, through, we're still kind of working out the details, but probably mid to late May. And then from there, it gets murky. We'll see. We'll just figure it out. But at least we have that much planned out to give you guys a heads, heads up as to where we're headed. Uh, but today, like I said, we're finishing up Matthew, so if you're uh, new to Hiawatha, glad you guys are here. Uh, we are going to finish up a series today, though, uh, on Matthew, and uh, two years ago, we were starting it because Matthew and Luke, two of the four gospel accounts in the New Testament uh, that give themselves over to the birth narrative, too, of Jesus, Mark and John do not, but uh, Matthew does, so it was a great thing to do around Christmas time in 2012. Sounds like ages ago, but we started singing in 2012. It's been three calendar years. It's crazy. Uh, since we've been in this thing. But, uh, and we're going to wrap it up today with some of Jesus' last words before his ascension. So uh, contextually here, uh, if you're jumping in with us, uh, Jesus has just died on the cross for the sins of the world, raised himself from the dead as he said he would three days later as the uh, prophecies and the scriptures predicted as well. But Jesus predicted, predicted this too, and that was last week, the resurrection. And today he appears to his 11 disciples. There were 12, uh, but at this point there's there's 11 because Judas, the one who betrayed him, has committed suicide at this point. He's not in the picture anymore, but there's this remaining 11 that he wants to appear to in Galilee. And so they, they, the women, two women at the tomb who saw Jesus first tell the disciples to go to Galilee. He's going to appear to you there, and he does, in fact, do that. So uh, today, these last five verses in Matthew 28 will uh, tell us a lot about him, about the nature of salvation and the nature of discipleship, what the church really should be about in terms of making more disciples or followers of Christ. We'll talk about that, but there's a, a final promise here as well that we'll, that we'll hit on. So today we're crossing that finish line. It's, it's the end, but I said first service too. Uh, narratively speaking though, and you'll see this in Matthew, I think the feel of this, uh, you also get it in the book of Acts elsewhere in the New Testament. When the book ends, you get a sense for which, yeah, it's over. This book is ended, but it kind of, it's not really a cliffhanger. It's not the best word for it, but it leaves the sense to which the story keeps going, that we're a part of it. Like any good history book, if you guys have read American history or world history before, or church history, more of an expansive volume on that, uh, you get this sense to, uh, sense to which at the end of the book, you're reading something that's kind of out here, it's almost, you know, not really touchable, a little bit more enigmatic, it's more topical in study, but then as history goes on, it gets closer to where you are in the story, until the, the point at the end of the story where you realize that it envelops you. And you're like, well, I'm a part of this thing. I'm a part of the same story. And it's a really cool feeling. Hard to put that into words. If you guys have read history before in a more expansive manner, you probably had that feeling. Oh, this is kind of cool. It almost matters more because I'm a part of the same story that all these great events and people experienced too, thousands of years ago or 200 years ago or 50 years ago. It's like it's, we're a part of the same, same thing. And so with the Bible, I think it's a similar deal where at the end of Matthew today, and you see this maybe especially at the end of the book of Acts, which I'll reference here, Shortly, you see this as well, where it's a little bit, a little bit anticlimactic. And I don't want to say fully anticlimactic, because we do get a really solid ending point here with some of Jesus' very summative words and commissioning words here at the Great Commission. At the same time, this happened on earth. This is not someone's made-up ideas about Christ. This happened on this very earth that you and I live on currently as well. So it, just, it matters more. And so you get this sense to which I think today that it really steamrolls ahead into the, the present 21st century here too when Jesus says, church, do this. Disciples, do this. And it's what we're doing here today as well. And the church just has been doing for the last 2,000 years as well. So let's dive right in. Uh, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. If you want to open up your Bibles, that'd be great. But otherwise, this will be on screen as well. I'll read it in full to begin and we'll come back and walk through it. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's start in verses 16 and 17. Uh, So again, in 16, the 11 disciples go to Galilee. At this point before this, they're in Judea, a more southern province and region, but they head back north and Jesus appears to them there. Uh, to this uh, mountainous area, and uh, Jesus is worshipped by the disciples. That's the first thing to see. They worshipped him. That's the first response. And here's another key element here, too, is Jesus, we saw this last week with the women, the two women at the tomb who also worship him, Jesus does not correct them, right? He's he's worshipped, but instead of saying, stop, don't do that, worship God, like the angels do elsewhere in the Bible, whenever angels references being worshipped. They say, stop, you must not do that. I'm a created being just like you. There's only one God. You can't worship me. But here, Jesus welcomes the worship, and it's right for him to be worshipped because, as we've seen major theme in Matthew, Jesus is God. He was conceived of by the Holy Spirit. He taught with unprecedented authority. He even changed or at least tweaked or redefined Old Testament law around himself. He drew people to himself rather than to a certain ideology or philosophy. In other words, he didn't point over there and say, live this way. He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Again, authoritative. Israel's teachers just did not say that. So he had unprecedented authority to say things like that. He called himself further the Son of Man and the Son of God. He raised others from the dead, including himself. And now here today, he's being worshipped. And the locale is important as well. He's being worshipped on a mountain. And and biblically, God shows up on mountains many times in the Bible to manifest his presence, meet with his people, and do amazing things. So just the locale itself, by being on a mountain, says, biblically, theologically, I am God. Not just a man, not just a prophet, but he welcomes the worship because he's not just a teacher. He's calling people continuously to himself and to what he has done for us as the Son of God. So they worshipped him. But then they add this interesting little phrase, this little caveat almost, in verse 17, but some doubted. Isn't that just a fascinating clause? I forgot that this was here. On Monday I'm reading this, I'm saying, what? I totally forgot that was there. You remember, if you're familiar with this passage, you remember the more come and go and make disciples, or therefore go or baptize and teach. But I forgot that some people are staring at the Son of God in the face, and they're hesitating with their faith. They're doubting. They're they're worshiping, but some there are also hesitant to fully trust as well. So why is that the case? I want to pause there for one second and ask that question. Why is this the case and why is this important for us to just land here and pause for a minute and see this narrative? What do we learn about maybe the disciples, about ourselves, as them being pictures of us here in light of this worship but also doubt? Now, to be clear, we don't know if this is the 11 disciples, probably is, or maybe there are other disciples, more general followers, disciple means follower of Christ, more general disciples there who are doing the doubting. It uh, might be the latter, could be the former, we're not sure, but either way it's problematic because these are people who are disciples. They knew Jesus. They knew him before he died on the cross. They, at least in terms of the 11, the others to some degree as well, but if they're there with the 11, they heard him predict his own death and resurrection, right down to the minutia and the details. Remember all of that, how he orchestrated the whole thing and all of it being planned by Christ. It was not in the hands of sinful men. It kind of was. God designed that, but Jesus orchestrating the whole thing. And down to the day, three days later, not two, not four, on the third day I will rise again. And it happened. Now they're seeing him face to face and they're still hesitating. They're still doubting. Is that really him? They're doubting and hesitating to to fully entrust themselves over to the care of this risen Christ, this risen Son of God. So what do we learn from this? It's a pretty cryptic thing, and there's a lot of thoughts on this. I'm going to give two things today, I think, that are the the bigger buckets that that people usually land in when they uh, talk about what does this doubt actually constitute, and what do we learn here. I think there's probably truth to both these things. Uh, Some people land more in one of the two buckets. Uh, These are at least both, just understand, Whether they hang on Matthew 28 is not really the question because these are biblical ideas elsewhere at least. I think that we're getting a whisper of here as well in Matthew 28. So the first is 
we're seeing simply a portrayal, more obvious one, a portrayal of hard-heartedness. These are people who are staring Christ in the face and disbelieving. Not unlike, remember, if you were here last week, the chief priests of the Jews who helped orchestrate Jesus' crucifixion and who set a guard in front of the tomb when Jesus was buried to make sure the disciples did not steal the body and start a rumor about his resurrection, but to whom the guards came and said an angel appeared and rolled away the stone and sat on the tomb and we fell down like dead men and there was no body. Basically saying he did rise from the dead or we at least have no way to explain it. The chief priest hearing this, what's their response? Not to believe even though they trusted the Old Testament script. They're waiting for a Messiah, an anointed one, a king, a son of David of power to come and rule forever. Even though they knew all of these things and they heard from Jesus himself, they did not believe, but they themselves start the rumor that Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples, that he was still dead somewhere and he was not the Christ, not the Son of God, not the Son of David, not the Messiah, not the one who will bring order and peace and salvation to all. So, in the spirit of that, we're seeing other disciples here today, again, confronted with the risen Savior, still having doubt. And it's a picture, I think, of our spiritual condition before God as well. In the sense that, even when we're confronted with Jesus broadly, or even irrefutable evidence, and maybe you guys have even had this, it's a part of your story currently, or it was, or you've seen it in people's lives. I've seen this plenty of times in my own heart, years ago, and in people's lives that I share the gospel with, even when there's no response from them towards the, the, the logic or the reason behind the resurrection or just the spiritual proclamation of the gospel itself, uh, there, there's, even if there's no response to it of, well, th- this is how it could have happened or this is another way we can explain it, there's still hard-heartedness uh, in it. And I think it's this evidence that we need something more, and you see it here narratively. The Bible says this elsewhere too. We need something more than information to save. Information's huge. Faith comes from hearing, the Bible says in Romans 10 17. So we have to hear about the cross, hear about the empty tomb, hear about Jesus being not just a man, but God dying in our place and putting our trust in it. But if that was it, everyone here would not have doubt. There'd be no doubt, there'd be no hesitancy. But the fact that there is tells us that it's more than just the information. There has to be heart renewal. There has to be something that God does in the life of the individual to prepare us to receive this, not just as history or information, but something that benefits us in God's kingdom. It's precisely what actually Jesus says elsewhere when he says in different gospel, when he says, no one comes to God the Father unless I draw him. No one comes to God the Father unless I do a work of drawing that person away from their spiritual tombs, raise them from the dead, and prepare them to receive this message of grace. So we can't just access God. We need Christ to be that intercessor, that intermediary, but also to be the one that's actually doing something in us to have faith at all, to believe at, at all. Elsewhere, Paul the Apostle says that we can, we can plant seeds of the gospel, cultivate the soil, fertilize it, water it, But only God makes that seed grow. We cannot make a seed of faith grow in someone's life. The Bible never says it. Never demonstrates it. Never says it. So we have have to beg Christ to make a seed of faith grow. Make the gospel matter to us, to people we're evangelizing, to just spiritually dead people anywhere we we interact with them in our schools, in our workplaces, in neighborhoods, families, wherever it is. We have to say, no matter how persuasive we think we might be, The Bible says elsewhere and shows here it's more than information. It's God using the information and cultivating it, making it spiritually significant to them and matter so that they can put their trust in it and doubt and hesitate less. And so one of the takeaways here is simply, do you see how much we need him? Again, we might think we hit a home run apologetically or when we're evangelizing people persuasively think that how could they not believe after that persuasive argument that I just laid out? But they're just simply not going to unless God makes it, makes it matter. And I've seen that play out time and time again in my life when I share the gospel with people. It's usually when I'm not persuasive that people believe. It's not when I'm at my best. And God delights in that, I think, to show that it's not me, it's him.
Test, test. Oh, there we go. Do you want to just maybe, uh, yeah, Spence, you mind just sitting up front just in case it goes out again? Then I'll um, just grab it from you. Thanks, Sam. Just down there is fine. I'd prefer this. First service, I used it, and I, it's like handcuffs. It's like preaching with handcuffs on. The guy likes to speak with his hands. It's like torture. But, um, all right, so uh, that's the first thing is how much, oh, how prone we are to not trust him. How much do we need him uh, for our own sake? And there's a lot of encouragement in here, tons of encouragement. You guys, if you are saved today, if you're a Christian, if you cross that line in the sand to trust alone in, the forgiveness, in, in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then behind the curtains of how, how exactly that came to pass in your life is God helping orchestrate that. It is a God who enabled you to believe, who helped you to believe, who wooed you to himself, who softened your heart to not just look at the information, but to see that it's personal to you, which is incredibly loving. God did not just do this stuff in the world and disappear and say, I hope they figure it out. But he appears to people. He makes it relevant. He makes it matter. He makes it the only hope. It's only then that we can have the hope to put our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. So if God is not that type of savior to you, you're, you're robbing yourself of joy and you're robbing him of getting glory because he does more than just do these things. He moved towards us. He softens us. This is how personal the fact that we, that we are Christians at all, that we at all trust in God, that we at all say he's my king, not me. That's a God thing. That's not a you thing. That's not a me thing. That's a God thing. And so rejoice and thank him. If you are a Christian for a second, every minute you're a believer, we should just pause and say, praise be to God that this is the case because God did an amazing work in my life. Otherwise, even in the face of Jesus himself, it would just be information and I would hesitate and I would doubt and I remain in my hard-heartedness. So that's one piece to it. I think another uh, relatively complementary perspective on this is that, uh, and I think they go together, I think it's a both and here, is that these hesitators, these doubters are individuals that have faith, they do trust, maybe they're even worshiping a little bit in their heart, but they have smaller faith than the rest of those who are categorized as not doubting or as not trusting or as not believing. The idea here being that when Jesus says, all you need is a mustard seed of faith, directed towards me, and that's enough. Big faith is celebrated in the Bible, no doubt, but Jesus also says, if you have this much faith, a speck of trust in me, if you're barely, barely with weak hands clinging to that life preserver in the middle of the ocean, it's enough. As long as that life preserver is Christ. As long as the the object of your faith is him, it's enough. And so, if that's the case, the picture we're getting here is people with stronger faith, lesser doubt, lesser hesitancy, and weaker faith, but faith nonetheless in Jesus, who are both with Christ. They're both in the room, on the mountain, I guess not in the room, but on the mountain here, with Christ. They're close to him. He is with them. It's a picture of salvation. It's a demonstration that it's not about the amount of faith in Christ. It's just that we have it. Messy faith or glorious faith. We all have some kind of messy, imperfect faith, like the man in Mark 8 who says, I believe Jesus, but help me in my unbelief. I believe but help my unbelief not to be there anymore. In the spirit of that, we all live. And what does Christ do? He operates. He moves towards. He celebrates that man. He heals his son who's dying. He saves. So I think in the spirit of that, then, we have this beautiful picture of wherever we are. And I, I use the analogy uh, a lot before of, um, of my wife and I, who my wife's not from Minnesota, and the first winter that we dated we went for a winter hike in northern Minnesota, and I wanted to walk out on a lake with her, a frozen lake, and freaked her out. <laughs> she couldn't do it. I got convinced her eventually. It took a lot of persuasion, a lot of uh, reason, you know, and a lot of, I don't know what I did. Somehow I got her out there, but it was not easy <laughs> for her to get out there. And I'm a Minnesota guy. I, I grew up uh, ice fishing some. I've driven on lakes and trucks, so I know it's going to hold me. It's going to hold the truck. So I was fine walking out there, but for her, um, it was very difficult. But she did go out, and we walked on this lake together. And, uh, and so to this day, now we can do that, even though it's a little bit, still a little bit hard for her 13 years later. But um, every winter, I can convince her now a little bit easier because she's done it. But the point is, we both walk out on that ice. We're both equally held up by the ice, even though my wife trusts in it less and I trust in it more. We're both equally held up and saved by that ice. You guys see? 
So it's not the amount. It's just that we have, just the object of our faith is what matters. And so if, you, if you're here and you feel like, I do hesitate, I do doubt, but I trust that he's the only Savior. I trust, I have questions, I have big questions that, are, that feel unresolved and I have some tension there. As long as you're trusting alone in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that's enough. It's not about being a rock star in your faith. It's about having messy faith before a God who makes you clean and who helps develop and cultivate that faith in your life over time. Just like my wife now walks on lakes with a little more confidence, being a Minnesotan for 13 years now, uh, that happens to us as well because uh, we're, all, we're all like that in our faith. And as long as we're with Christ, as long as we trust in him, so really, either way, one or two here, this is sobering news, but very encouraging as well, because in both, uh, from both perspectives, what this is saying narratively is, Jesus has to save. It's not our amount of faith, and it's not even the fact that we, just with information, approach him. It's him softening our hearts, it's him drawing us out onto that ice uh, with weak or strong faith, saying, I'm enough, I'm sufficient. We don't save, Jesus saves. Not about us, it's about him. Even faith itself uh, is, is a gift. No matter how small or messy, uh, Christ makes that possible. Praise be to God. All right, let's move on. Verses 18 to 20a. I'll read that one more time. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, Jesus says here, all authority has been given to me. In other words, because I've been raised, because I'm the Christ, because I'm the Son of God, all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to me. Not that it wasn't before, but now he's been raised and justified in his resurrection the whole point of his arrival in the world has, has really been culminated. Therefore, he says, because of all of that, go. So because of the gospel, because of the fact that Jesus dies for our sins and is raised again and defeated death for us as well, there needs to be movement. And that came up as well last week too. If you remember, the, the two things that the angel and Jesus say repetitiously, so they both say it uh, at the empty tomb to the two women are what? Don't fear, don't be afraid anymore because I have slain all of your enemies decisively. So don't fear. And secondly, go and tell people quickly. People need to know this because the knowledge of this is what saves. We can't put our trust in this to save us if we don't know about it. So go tell people that I'm alive. So the gospel then leads to movement, but it's not just movement, it's movement with intention. And the... Uh, Bible here, Jesus here, uses the phrase making disciples. So then the big question becomes, well, what, it, what does it mean to make a disciple? What does it mean to make a follower or a person who is with Christ or under his rule and authority, uh, peacefully, gladly, salvifically? What does it mean? And of course, for the disciples, they will be thinking, they're disciples. So they'd be thinking, I need to go make more people who are like what I experienced these past three years with Jesus. I had to go make more people to have that kind of experience of being with him, messing up with my words and actions, being unfaithful to him but experiencing his grace, receiving his teaching. All of that has to uh, occur now cyclically but in a higher level because now we're on this side of the cross and the empty tomb so there's more clarity. And I'll clarify some of that here in just a second. But that's the, that's the, the big thing we're seeing, the therefore. All authority been given to me, I've died I've raised again, sin and death are, are, are defeated enemies, therefore go and tell people about this and, and make, make disciples. But the question remains, it can be kind of enigmatic, right? What does, it mean to make, what does it mean to make a disciple? People write books on these things that I think sometimes, honestly, are just way too long, <laughs> like 200 pages full of uh, charts and graphs and Egyptian hieroglyphs and things that are just impossible to understand, or at least difficult. And I think it, the matter is confused a lot. If you ever Amazon or Google search a book and it's more than 200 pages on discipleship, it might be maybe not worth the read. Or maybe it is, but it's just probably too confusing, more confusing than it has to be. Regardless, what Jesus says here is really quite simple, right? Jesus in a nutshell tells us that making disciples are baptizing and teaching. Baptize people and teach them more about Jesus. 
to observe specifically what he taught his disciples in his life. So we can expand that, I think, then to say, making a disciple is communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone over and over and over again and helping them to grow in their knowledge and application of it. And the reason why I'm making this more expansive definition is because baptism, we'll start there and I'll talk about teaching here in a second, but it's that two-headed idea, baptize, teach, baptize, teach, baptize, teach. Baptism, biblically, is inextricably connected with conversion and with telling someone about the faith, telling someone about the empty tomb. So we don't just randomly dunk people in water as churches. Right? We don't just randomly do that. There's meaning and symbolism behind it, right? It's an emblem of renewal. It's an emblem that Christ has washed us from our sins with his blood. Even more, it's a symbolic association of the believer with Jesus' death, his resurrection, which conveys further the same idea. Our old selves have died and our new selves have been raised in him and with his help. Transformation, resurrection has occurred and baptism symbolizes that. So it's appropriate then to do it after or post-conversion. So baptism then, to, if you want to kind of click on that word, it opens up kind of a new website here of what does conversion mean? And so really that's, what's, that's what he's saying. It's synonymous with the idea of telling people about Jesus Christ, telling people about the Son of God, telling people about the cross and the empty tomb. When he says baptize, you have to have conversions first. So Jesus says, make disciples, tell a bunch of people about me, announce the kingdom of God is here, God is here to rescue, and all that that means, all that's wrapped up in that phrase and idea, as he did to his disciples, remember, announce the kingdom, so make more disciples who would do that as well, but this time with more clarity, it's less foggy, it's post-cross, so the nations now need to hear and are going to hear, and it's going to be more clear as to how God saves, whereas before it wasn't, but regardless, make more people who hear that first, are baptized and are equipped to announce it further. Then regarding teaching, uh, teach people to obey my commands, he says. When we make disciples, part of what we do, especially uh, post-conversion and baptism, is teach people more, all the more, about Jesus and, and his teachings. And note here that he does not say Old Testament commands. He said Ten Commandments here. He says, teach people more about my commands, what I have commanded you elsewhere in the gospel. So then the question becomes, when we teach Jesus' commands to people, what are we teaching exactly and in what capacity? And I think they boil down to basically two things. Jesus teaches people to come to him for deliverance in many and various ways. It's beautiful. He says it and shows it in almost every chapter. Come to me. That's his teaching. And the second thing is love. You boil all, everything down, it basically falls into those two buckets. Come to me and love people as I have loved you. And I think sometimes when we hear this idea of teach people Jesus' commands, we, we think about something that's just not there in the Gospels. We, we think we know what that means, but we don't. We've got to go back and really just get in a list. All the things that Jesus says as imperatives or commands and list them out and just see how commonly they fall into these two ideas of simply just come to me, messy. Come to me, a person that does not keep my commands and I will save you. Come to me as a person that's a failure. Come to me as a person who is spiritually poor. And so one of the ways I want to see this first idea too, especially is coming to Christ. We saw, if you remember the first thing Jesus says in Matthew 5, the first beatitude is blessed are the, you guys remember? Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who see themselves as spiritually poor people. Blessed are saved or close to God are people who view themselves as not very good people at all, but spiritual wretches. Blessed are they. It's the first thing he says. Basically, of all of his teachings, that's the first thing that he kind of spins off from there. But isn't that amazing? Blessed are us. So what he does then is he talks, start talking about some more Old Testament laws as more inkeepable, unkeepable. He taught us to come to him, not to some moral ideal. I talked about that before, but also three here. He taught us that we cannot keep Old Testament law perfectly, and need something other than commandments to save. This is clear. This this is one of the reasons why Jesus was hated by chief priests, hated by elders, hated by Pharisees and Sadducees of the Jews, is that they were offended by how much Jesus was fulfilling, completing, but also kind of bypassing law and saying, now that I am here, come to me, and and I will help you. I will deliver you. I will give you rest. I will give you deliverance. And so one one of the ways he did that is, He said, you thought that you were keeping the commandment, don't commit adultery. If 
by not having sex with someone else other than your wife or your husband. But I say to you, every time you have lust in your mind and heart, you've basically done the same thing as physical adultery. You've had sex with that person in your mind. So then, then the takeaway becomes, I've, I've, had, I've been unfaithful to my wife. I've been a lawbreaker hundreds of thousands of times in my life, and I thought I was perfect at it because I've never committed adultery physically. I thought I was perfect in that area before God. I thought that one was checked off. And Jesus says, no, actually, not only did you not keep it once, you, you've never kept it. How lustful are we? How much do we want things that are forbidden to us every day? So Jesus is raising the hurdle about 30 feet in the air and saying, if you want to keep the law, jump over that. Good luck. The takeaway from that is one of two things. You, you try harder and think, all right, this is hard. Drink some Gatorade. I'm going to really get a run at it and go for it. Or you say, I can't do it. And you follow Jesus and you look to something other than commandments to save. And that's God himself. And that's what he wanted. That's what the law was always intended to do. Paul the Apostle in the New Testament, Romans 5, says that the law actually increased sin. It makes sin a bigger deal so that grace would abound all the more. And we'd go to grace, not to law and works and ourselves. We'd actually go to God. So the law is like a mirror. It shows us our filthy face so that we won't use the mirror itself to clean. That'd be weird to use a piece of glass to kind of clean our face. What do we do when we see dirt in our face? We go to soap and a rag. We go to something else other than the mirror to clean us. Not the law. We go to, to something distinctly different than the law to clean, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the soap. That's the cloth. So we have to make this, see this movement. And Jesus helps us do that by saying, here's law, and he teaches, but his ultimate command is come to me. Don't go to yourself, another God, or law, and if, if you do go to law, see your inability to keep it. Don't rip it out of your Bibles. It, it continues its prophetic witness to show us our sin and to show Jesus as what's more important, the, the ultimate, actually the one who can save us and wash our hearts, not just, a, not just our skin a little bit, but it can actually wash our DNA of our horrendous sin. So that's the first thing. The second thing is he, he does teach things like how to pray and how to forgive in light of his grace, but especially how to love. As I said before, and it's radical love. Matthew 5 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Radical love. Not just love, but love in a way the world does not understand. Because people don't love enemies naturally. They love people who love them. That's easy to reciprocate that, Right? But Jesus is clear to say that pagans and people very distant from God and people who are not seeking from God, they love that way. But he says, what I want for you is a different kind of love. I want that love, but I want a greater kind that actually has you love people who hate you. And the kicker here is, well, on one level, who does that? Even, like, even Christians, we should ask this ourselves, do we actually do that? Do we sacrificially love and put our enemies who hate us before ourselves. How often do we do that? It's very convicting. But this is the kind of love that we're called uh, to, to embody. It's, a, it's an enemy-loving, others-loving type God. And John 13 says it to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Christians should love one another. Just as I have loved you, that's a key phrase there, you also are to love one another. And then 1 John 3, 23. This, is, this summarizes both these two ideas of believing, coming to him, and loving radically. This is his commandment. So defining it right here. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Believe, come to him, and love one another. Just as he commanded us. That's what it comes down to. But I love this last not so much spin on it because it's saying the same thing, but the summative nature is really great. But it helps us understand that love is something God shows first. You know, Jesus is not saying love really well and then I'll save you. He says, I've loved you. I've died for you. You're my enemies and I've shown you love. You're different from me. You're hard to be around. In a lot of ways, the Bible says our sin's offensive to him and yet that didn't stop him from coming to sit down by us and touch us and cleanse us of our spiritual leprosy. And heal us and wash us with his blood. And he's saying, now that I've done that for you and it's unchangeable and that saves you, 
Go and reflect that by loving people who are very different from you. And the world will see it and they'll say, I've never seen that before. Tell me about it. And you'll say, you think this is great? Let me tell you about this. Because God has done this on an infinitely greater level than you're seeing it demonstrated here. This is radical and God's making that possible. But God is an enemy-loving God. He's a a God who makes his enemies his friends and makes them approachable and brings them to his table to dine with him. He does it all through the cross by removing sin, by removing death, by removing barriers so that it is possible. And the church then should be a haven, not perfect, by no means perfect, right? But a haven of, of love and of radical love to reflect the fact that at the core, God is about his glory and he's about love, love for lost people like us. We also see this play out in the book of Acts in the New Testament. I'm not going to talk much about this, but I I do want to mention it in passing. And if we presuppose for a second that the disciples here, hearing Jesus say, go and make disciples, baptize, teach, and all of that, if we presuppose they were actually obedient to that, they were actually doing it in the book of Acts, which tells us the the historical theological narrative of the early church and how it exploded, then we should look to Acts for our definition as well, right? of what disciple-making really means. And so if we do that, and we think especially what happens after Peter is, and the other disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're in that room, and they preach, and Peter stands up and preaches, and we look at the rest of the book. Well, what is the, the book of Acts full of? What happens? How does the church expand? How are people grown up into the Lord? Preaching. People say something to others. It's It is unavoidably word-based. Disciple-making is about preaching, teaching, saying the tomb is empty. Let me tell you what happened. Let me call you to believe in it. And people do, and they're baptized, and they're equipped in it, and they grow in it. So this is what they do, right? They preach, they preach some more, they love people, even those who hate them, they pray for them. They preach again, they start churches, they raise up elders and leaders, they train, they send, and the cycle continues. So... What does it mean to make a disciple? Preach the gospel, baptize people, and they receive the gospel. Teach a way of living that reflects the gospel, especially love. Equip people with the gospel. Send people out with the gospel to make more disciples. And the cycle continues and continues and continues. The the end of Acts, the last couple of verses, I want to read these too. This is, I love how this occurs. A lot of amazing stuff happens, even miraculous stuff happens in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul and others with their ministries. God opens a lot of doors miraculously. At the end of the book, though, Paul is in house arrest in Rome. And it says this. uh, This is the last two verses of the whole book. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is what disciple-making is. You welcome people, you go to people, you tell them about Jesus, and you tell them again. And you baptize them when they believe, and you tell them some more about Jesus, and you equip them, you proclaim the kingdom, you proclaim that God is good, and he's here to save. You see how word-based it is? Look at what it says. It's almost kind of anticlimactic in one sense. It's like, all this stuff, really, Paul, that happened in your life, and now you're in house arrest, your ankles are you know, ankle cuffed together and you're just in a kind of an average home and you're just talking to people a little bit about Christ. And is that, is that it, really? Yeah, that's it. That's what it means to make disciples. Tell people, tell people, tell people. Herald, proclaim, share, evangelize. This has to be the center of Christian mission, you guys. We cannot replace it. There's more, to, there's more radical ways to love and demonstrate that love, but we just don't see a place in the scripture that replaces the center with, uh, with something other than words. Jesus and the angel says, say, go and tell. Jesus here says, go tell the nations, baptize, preach, make disciples, pronounce the kingdom. We've got to be about in big formal to the masses, but also small informal across a dinner table and with our radically loving actions. This is what the church has been about for 2,000 years. We're not reinventing the wheel here, nor should we. We just want to keep in step with this great historical movement of God that he is behind and he's making value to people. Um, and matter to people so that they can be saved. Lastly, verse 20b. The last words of Matthew. 
Note how it ends, not with a command, but a promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So a little bit of inclusio going on here, a literary device, kind of a bookend literary device of repetition. Remember how the book began with the angels pronouncing his birth, Matthew 1.23, and they shall call Jesus' name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now here in Matthew 28, the last words, Jesus says, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's the ultimate promise and the ultimate expression of blessing and goodness, and that is the That is the thing that we need in our life, bar none. God to be close, God to bless, God to save, and his grace to be close to our hearts. It's incredibly good news too, especially when you remember that, maybe you weren't aware of this, that before Christ came into the world, this was not possible. And it still is not a reality for those of us who are not saved. We are not with God. We are still very, very, very separated. And before God came into the world, even even in the sense that, when he worked with Israel through a a variety of things, a system that called people close with the temple and so forth and sacrifice, it was still a come close to me, but stay far away. Don't come come too close because if you come too close, if you touch me, if you look at me, if you touch things I've touched, you will die because you cannot be in my, I'm too holy and you're too much of a sinner. So even in that system, we could not be with God. But Jesus being this ultimate access point, this ultimate intercessor, this ultimate final way that God has said, this is how I'm going to do away with that barrier, that I'm going to fix the chasm, we can be uh, where he is. So it was not possible before, but with Jesus, bookended in Matthew, God will be with you in this man, and now at the end, Jesus says, I will be with you. I, as the Son of God, will always, always, always be with you. It's a promise. It's actually almost kind of romantic, I think. It's, it sounds very husband-like. It reminded me of you know, like a dying husband on his deathbed saying to his wife, I'll always be in your heart, I'll always be with you, or something like that. We, we do this, right, or hear about this, or see this portrayed. And it, if, if it is, I, and I think it is, it, we, we would expect it because Jesus is like a husband, the Bible says. And we are like his bride. We understand our relationship with God now on marital levels. That's how close you are to him. That's how much he loves you. You are not an employee to God. You are married to him, and he is in you. You are like a son and a daughter adopted into his family. You are like a wife to a husband, the perfect husband. That's your relationship with God. Grace. Do you see? Grace. Not law, not not employee-driven, review, end-of-year driven, uh, employee review time, where how did I do? Okay, I can work on that better. I'm sorry, I screwed up again. Not, not in that. He's not your boss, not a slave master. He is your father, your husband. He's the lover of your souls and mine. Because of the cross, that's possible. Because of Jesus, he can be with us again, and it's possible again. The Bible picks up on this elsewhere, too. It's striking. I noticed this this week for the first time. I knew it was true for some of Paul's letters, but not literally all. Every one of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament, plus a few that he didn't write, including the book of Revelation, which I'll read. And he wrote, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. All of his end with, and with one exception, it's the last verse in his letters. In Romans, it's not the last last paragraph, I think, or chapter at least, but they all end with this phrase or some variation of it. Grace be with you. Let me just read them to, so you guys get a sense for this. Romans 16 says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be, and then with you. Same idea as Jesus is saying, I'm with you. The grace of Christ be with you. 1 Corinthians 16, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians 6, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Ephesians 6, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Philippians 4, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Colossians 4, grace be with you. 1 Thess 5, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Thess 3, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 1 Timothy 6, grace be with you. 2 Timothy 4, grace be with you. Titus 3, grace be with you all. Philemon 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And in the end of the book, Paul didn't write this one, John did, but the last sentence in the entire Bible 
Revelation 22, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all. Amen. What's the Bible trying to tell us? Over and over and over again. The grace of God be so close to your hearts that it's a mantra for your life. The fact that God saves and you don't be close to your spirit. The fact that he's loving and good, may that be close to your mind. It's, it's the best thing to wish upon our church and our hearts, bar none. What does it not say over and over again? It does not say, morality be with your spirit, brothers. The law be with your spirit, church. The Ten Commandments be close to your mind, church, Christian. No, no, and no. What does it say? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ wrapped up in the cross and the empty tomb, the gift, the packaged gift that that is for the church just to say, thank you, God. That principle, that truth, and all that's wrapped up in it be with your mind and your spirit and your church community till the end of your days. That is the best prayer we can pray for anybody. It's the best thing you can write on those blue cards every week. There's a lot of great prayers. So it's not the only thing we can pray, but it's the best, it's the best prayer. We can write down or wish for ourselves or pray. The grace of Jesus Christ be close to you. So that as you pray for provisions and physical healings, no matter what God answers or in his timing, you're wishing that his grace be sufficient. You're wishing that his, his closeness to you be a reality, not just some historical thing someone wrote 2,000 years ago. But you want that for our people. Grace not works. God not us be close to our heart and our spirit. And in that, you are distinctly non-religious. You are distinctly Christian and not other religions because no other religion has this blessing. Every other religion ends their letters, their religious documents with try harder, effectively. Be a better person. Keep laws with more vigor. But not the Bible. The Bible says, you want the center of your heart? I want the idea that you've done nothing to earn your salvation. But God has done absolutely everything. He's even softened your heart to believe. Because without that, we'd just be hesitating before him and not fully entrusting ourselves to him. Even faith is a gift, the Bible says. That's how much we need him and that's how much he's resolved to save you and me. Praise God. Praise God. And this is what Christmas is all about as well. Not that he just was born, but that he was born to die to bring grace into the world at this level. In conclusion, then, three things just to, just to summarize. First is, there is an imperative, there's a command, make disciples. This is for all, not just for pastors. This is for all Christians. Somehow be involved with preaching about Jesus Christ to other Christians. Further make them disciples and to non-Christians. To anyone who will listen. Baptize them if they're, if they're converts after they believe. Enfold them into the church. Teach them more about the gospel as they grow, focusing especially on loving enemies and loving other Christians, God's people, and equip them to, to, do, to do the same for the rest of their life. Be involved in that. It is clear that it's a commission, and it's not optional, and it's not for just the leaders of a church. It's an invitation for all people who have the Spirit to enter in this type of... It shouldn't be too complex. It's messy, no doubt. And maybe it is complex, but it's easy to understand. Discipleship is not Egyptian hieroglyphs. Just talk about Christ and learn about him and challenge yourself and one another to love as a reflection of his love radically, but especially uh, preach about him formally and informally. Uh, pray God's grace upon others' lives like Paul does in every single one of his letters. At the end of the day, I want you to know the grace of God and to rest in it. That's it. I mean, in light, everything he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. And then again, rest in that. Number three, rest in knowing that Christ is with you right now. Wherever you are as a believer, uh, whatever pain you're experiencing, God became a human being so that he could shed his blood for you and me, lost but loved human beings. And now he's close to us again, never to leave. He's promised it. And there is something that God cannot do. Ever get that question from Someone who's trying to be devil's advocate. What can God not do? Anything? Well, then he could do evil, right? Well, no. There is something he can't do. He can't lie. It's impossible. And he can't do evil. God can't do it. So God promises a lot of things in the Bible. And this is, this is the encouraging counterpart. When the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie, then we say he's never going to change that promise. 
He's never going to relent. It's not going to be untrue in 2,000 years. He will always be the giver of grace. He will always be with us. He will never forsake us. If you, if you believe him into your life, if you welcome him into your heart to wash you of all of your sin, he says, I'll do it, and I never won't do it. I'll always do it in the future. I'll be the lamb of God for you, the bleeding one in the future as well. I'll be that mediary, intermediary, and I'll, and I'll always save you. He's always close. It's just such a great, it's hard to overestimate how incredible that is and, and how much we need to equip our minds with stuff, just simple stuff that most of you know already, but you've forgotten. Simple stuff like that so that when you're in the throes of it, and some of you are or you will be, when things hit the fan and it's really, 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 really bad and there's no hope, you say, Jesus is with me in this. And you preach that to yourself. Sin is abolished. And my God is close to my heart never to leave. And he's coming again. We've, we've got to preach this stuff to ourselves because we're going to need it. You don't need it today, you're going to need it tomorrow. And you're sitting right next to somebody who's going to need to hear it from your mouth. We need each other in the church to be on mission together and to be disciple-making within the confines of the church, but also going out as well, outside of our walls, but also to Christians. We never finish this job of becoming disciples. We need to keep becoming disciples by keep learning more about the gospel and becoming mature in it, equipping our minds and teaching others to do the same. Make disciples Pray God's grace upon others' lives, including yourself, and rest in the grace of God, which is the whole point of the Bible, including Matthew. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, for the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ and Matthew that we've just seen and basked in for two years, over two years now, how everything, uh, everything you say, everything you teach, every proverb or uh, parable and proverb, really, that you speak in your ministry, every healing you, you do, and especially the cross, everything is either a, a representation, a foreshadowing, a picture, a type, an anticipation of the cross, or it is the cross, an empty tomb. Everything, God, Jesus, you were about was that. Uh, help us to rest in that, to not have fear, to go and tell, make disciples, to remember that grace is central. God being with sinners again is the point of the whole Bible. That's possible because of you, not us possible because of what you've done. May that be central also devotionally, sacramentally, ongoingly for us as Christians. And if we're not Christians here yet today, that we would know and believe that and receive that for the first time. But that is uh, what you offer. You offer yourself. You offer help. You offer what you've done. Not a list of laws to keep, but a gift of grace to give. And we thank you for that. Uh, help us at Christmas time to remember this as we see the manger, to see the shadow of the cross behind it that's why you were born. Uh, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand and respond.